morning again. It's so good to be up here. Way up here. But you know, driving up along the river is just wonderful. Only one thing can make it better. Motorcycle. But as I was telling a couple people, reason one out over passion today, and I didn't, I didn't bring the bike. I am always glad to be among family up here, and I hope, I hope you're glad as well. Um, and because you're family, I feel a certain freedom with you. And today, I'm going to start that off with this freedom, freedom to express my disappointment since my last visit, especially with the young men of this congregation. Because last October, when I was up here, I expressed that I have three adult daughters who need husbands. And my phone has been silent for four months. Now, these daughters are among the most beautiful in the land. They get that from their mother. They are gifted musically. They get that from their mother, too. And they are intelligent, and they get that from their mother as well. And they're witty, which they get from me. So um, I got a chance, young men, for you to redeem yourselves, though. Okay? March 3rd. March 3rd, we're hosting an Equipping in the Word, where we bring uh, men together from across upstate New York into Clifton Park. And this is not just for the young men. This is for all ages and just give you some help and tools for studying the Bible, and we're going to be working through um, Old Testament narratives, um, especially out of the book of Samuel. So, you young men that want to redeem yourselves in my sight can join us for that March 3rd. You come, be part of it, and make sure you have lunch with me, and we'll talk a little bit more about my daughters. All right. <laughs> now, um, that's not disconnected from my sermon, by the way. Because um, I like weddings. I, I like weddings. How many of you like weddings? You like weddings? I like weddings. Um, I like marriage. I like what happens when a man and a woman come together. Um, in part because of what's happening there and in part of what, because of what it's showing forth and picturing for us, as Paul, as Paul says. Uh, the first wedding I really remember was my own, and it was good. Uh, it was really good. And then I was the best man at my older brother's wedding later. Um, I've given away three daughters at weddings already. As a pastor, I've officiated a number of weddings. In fact, one of those, uh, one wedding I was a groomsman at for uh, one of my apprentices, and I almost got to officiate and be the groomsman at the same time because the pastor who was supposed to officiate was sick kind of coming into that wedding, and we weren't sure he was going to be able to be there, so that was going to be interesting. Expand my resume by being a groomsman and an officiant. But I like weddings. There's something just very special about weddings. So let me just ask you, because you all said you like weddings, what do you like about a wedding? What's, what's special about a wedding? What's that? The beauty? Okay. Of anything particular? Okay. Yeah. It's just nice, isn't it? It's nice. It's usually colorful. All right. What else? The what? Newness. Newness. All right. 
Yeah. Not only are two people coming together, but two families um, are now joining. So there's a newness. All right. What else? Commitment. Commitment. Yeah. Weddings demonstrate commitment. Anything else? Food. Food. Yeah, food. Yeah, hopefully there's good food. All right. Well, I, I have one particular thing that I look for nowadays in weddings. I like to watch the groom. You know, the groom, he stands up there, right? He's got to stand up there sometimes a long time. I don't know what the women are doing in the back, but it's a long time. And he's just standing up there. And he's waiting. He knows. He's been, he's been waiting for this for a long time, right? I mean, think about it. He has spent a long time chasing after this girl. He's fought off all her competitors for her affection. He's had to endure her family, right? They're grilling him. The younger siblings are making fun of him. The older siblings are questioning their you know, sister sanity, etc. And he's, he's now got to the point. She said yes, and everything's ready, and he's just up there waiting. And what I like to watch for is the minute the door opens in the back, bride steps in, I love watching his face because it just suddenly glows like a semi-transfiguration. Just emanates with joy. And if you ever want to see a hardened man tear up, it's probably going to be when his bride steps through the door. So I watch for that because I, I like that. It's wonderful. There's something else about weddings um, and that is that all the weddings I've been to, the bride has been virtuous. She's been a, a good person. She's been pretty. She's been dressed up nicely and, and so forth. Um, and so she's the kind of person that, that's worthy of rejoicing over. And so that's where I kind of want to get us into the text of Isaiah because when it comes to how God interacts with us, it is... Um, so different, use the word holy, right, which is set apart, not just set apart, but different than, different than. I want us to get a look at that, and I want us to start by understanding that the kind of bride that 62 talks about doesn't start out as a virtuous woman. Look, look back to Isaiah 57, if you would, and just one of the many descriptions Isaiah has of this bride-to-be. I'm going to start reading, or let's say, at verse 3. Draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valleys is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them who have loved their bed, who have looked on nakedness. 
You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes and sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, so, and so you were not faint. This is not the kind of bride who can wear a dress, a white dress on her wedding day without shame. She is, she is an embarrassment. This is not the kind of bride that one would rejoice over. And this is Isaiah's description, is God's description through Isaiah of what Israel has become. And what he's referring to here is the idolatry that they engaged in. Look what he says. Uh, you burn with lust among the oaks and every green tree. You remember that they, they built for themselves places to worship idols in all the groves. And then you went down into the valleys and you offered up your drink offering and grain there. And then you set up uh, on the high places and the lofty mountains, all these places where you could worship all of these false gods. Not the kind of bride one would rejoice over. And yet, because God is so different, look back to chapter 62. And there's a phrase at the end in verse 5. Your God shall rejoice over you. Think about that. It was interesting that we were singing about rejoicing today, and this this sermon um, was the last in a series of six or eight that we were preaching at Durkee Town. I, I happened to be the one to preach this one. And they were songs of rejoicing was the, sort of the series title, and they were all of Isaiah. What I found interesting as I went through it was all of the previous sermons were about us rejoicing in God. And, and that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, think about what we sang up here, about what he has done for us and who he is. He is worthy of being rejoiced over. But what's interesting about this text is this text is not about us rejoicing over God. It is about God rejoicing over us. Imagine that. Imagine that God looks upon us and his face glows. The kind of delight that the groom has when the bride steps in the door at the wedding is the kind of joy and excitement in God over us, his people. And what makes it even greater is to remember where we came from. Isaiah is described in 57. Um, Apostle Paul described it this way to the church in Colossae. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. We're not any different than Israel was. A tendency to be idolatrous. That's what he calls these things. He says that sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness are idolatry. They're no different than the sin of Israel. We were not a clean bride. In fact, uh, the scripture here tells us what we were. Look back there into Isaiah 62. 
And we're kind of working backwards from verse 5 back up to verse 1. And he says, uh, verse 4, You shall no more be termed, what? Forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. That's, that's where this woman was, right? Ugly, nasty, reproachful, adulterous. She's been forsaken. Nobody wants her. They've used her for what they wanted, and now she's been dumped. And she is desolate, meaning her, her beauty is gone. Imagine a, imagine a garden full of fruit and vegetables and flowers and water, and, and it's just growing and it's beautiful, and then all of that's just swept away by a harsh, dry wind, and you end up with just brown dirt, no water, Everything is wilted and dead. It's desolate. And that's what he that's what that's what they were called. They were called forsaken. Their land was called desolate. But he's not going to leave them there. He's not going to leave them there. Uh, verse if you go back in the chapter 61 in the last few verses, you're going to see that he does something great. So this these chapter breaks sometimes aren't real helpful to us. 61 is kind of flowing right into 62. And in chapters uh, 61, verses 10 and 11, the bridegroom's describing what's happened. Look at this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Remember back in Isaiah 57, she has gone out and she has uncovered herself to everybody. And found all these various lovers, but God has come and he has clothed her now. He's making her decent again, as she ought to be. And look what it goes on to say. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as the bride adorns herself with her jewels. He doesn't just cover up, but then he he adds to that these jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This woman who is forsaken and desolate, he's transformed her now into someone beautiful for him to marry. So that he can now call her what? My delight is in her. Anybody got an, anybody use a King James out there? What is your, you have it with you? What does it say? Hephzibah. Oh, yes! Hephzibah! I love that. If you're going to name a daughter, I would name her Hephzibah. That's a really good name. And that's, that, that's the Hebrew word that means he delights in her. Hephzibah. All right, what's the next one? Well, most of you probably have married, right? What's in the King James? Beulah. Yeah, Beulah. Now, some of you, you know the word Beulah, probably the name Beulah a little better. Somebody might, I had a, my mom had a relative named Beulah. Some of you might know that as a name that women sometimes had in several generations ago. And if you, I don't know if it's in your hymnal, but a good hymnal has the song Beulah Land, right? Going across the Beulah Land, all right? So Beulah's known a little bit better, but. So here's some, here's some uh, names to learn, Hephzibah and Beulah. What does that mean? It means that God, God has renamed this woman, because he's created, recreated her 
into something. Now, this is not new. God does this throughout the Bible. He names things. that he named, And he names them in accord with reality. Remember Abram? And God says, you're no longer Abram. You're Abraham. You're no longer Sarah. You're Sarah. And he renames Jacob Israel. And if you fast forward all the way to Revelation, you're going to find this new name. Maybe you know that song too, right? I've got a new name written down in glory. How many of you ever sung that one? He renames us in accord with reality. We were forsaken and desolate. Forsaken in our sin, desolate in death. But he has renewed us. He has made us new. He has made us alive in Christ. And so then he renames us. He now delights in us. That's the name. And he marries us. We are uh, his bride. Paul puts it this way when he writes to the Ephesians. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's, that's just like right, right what's in here. Look back a little ways and you see this in verse 3. She's going to be crown, a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be turned forsaken. Your land shall no more be turned desolate. You shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. And so shall your God rejoice over you. Just imagine. God looks out and he sees Wicked, evil people in rebellion against him. And he says, I want them. I want to rejoice in them. I want them to be with me forever. Does he need us? No. He doesn't need us. But he, but he wants us. And so what does he do? He takes his only son and he says, you are going to be the redemption price. So that you can make a beautiful bride for me that I can rejoice in. And that's what he does. He rejoices. He delights in. But what's even greater is it's not enough for God just to enjoy the bride for himself. That's one of the other things that's nice about a wedding. In fact, I'm always disappointed when a wedding is a small little affair where there's just a couple people involved. This is something to broadcast to the world. Let everybody know. I was thinking about that. I did, uh, I did watch one wedding on TV once. Princess Diane. Remember that? <laughs> the whole world was watching. Now, I was young back then. I wasn't really into all that. So there's way too much way too much stuff there. It was like overload. It's like eating a whole big cake by yourself. So I only watched a little bit of it. And then I probably went out and played or something. But, but the world needs to know. It's not enough. It's not enough for God to just enjoy the bride for himself. How many of you know the story of Sir Gawain, the knight of the round table? Anybody read the story of Sir Gawain? Did you raise your hand? 
Thank, thank you. Okay. I, this is the fourth congregation I've preached this to, and I'm telling you, outside of my family, only two other people besides you have read the story of Sir Gawain. All right, so I'm disappointed again. I'm just telling you. But you can, you can redeem yourselves. You can find a copy of that somewhere and read it before I come back up here and preach again. All right? Okay. And with Stephen traveling all over, you never know. That might be next week. So get to work. The story of Sir Gawain is that um, an old woman, ugly old hag, helps King Arthur and saves his life. But in return, she gets to marry one of the knights of the round table. And so King Arthur comes to his, his group of knights, and he asks which, she asks her which one she wants to marry, and she points out Sir Gawain, this ugly old woman. And Sir Gawain marries her. He consents to marry her because he's a, he's a knight. You do those things, right? It's chivalrous. So he marries her. And he finds out on his wedding night, he goes in to the room where she is, and he finds out she's not an ugly old hag. She's beautiful. She's gorgeous. She's one of the best-looking women in the world. And he's like, what's going on? She says, well, I've been bewitched, and so half the time I get to be a beautiful woman, and half the time I'm, I'm an ugly old hag. And Sir Gawain, being a man, says all right, you can be the ugly old woman during the day and you can be the beautiful woman at night. Well, the woman, being a woman, says, no, 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 no. I want to be the beautiful woman during the day. I can be the ugly hag at night. All right, there you go. What does Sir Gawain do? Well, Sir Gawain, he's a knight, so he consents. You can be the beautiful woman during the day. Anybody know the story yet? No, okay. Well, now you know it, but you still need to go read it. It's much better than I'm giving it. But here's the great thing. She's not really bewitched. She's a bewitcher. And she is beautiful all the time, but she was testing Sir Gawain to see if he would uh, be chivalrous like he ought to be. And so he gets this woman who's gorgeous. Now, what's that got to do with Isaiah? Well, (laughs) God will not just enjoy his bride in privacy he will broadcast to the world that he has the best bride he has the most beautiful bride look at it look at it right here in chapter 62 for zion's sake i will not keep silent and for jerusalem's sake i will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. He's not going to do this in secret. He's going to put it out there for the world to know that he has the most beautiful bride that none of the other gods can compare to. He wants it to be known so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is God, that he is great. It's not just that he has the most beautiful bride, but he made her the most beautiful bride. And he wants the world 
to know that. He causes her to be a crown of glory and a royal diadem. Just to spend some time thinking about that today. He took what was forsaken and desolate and has made it into something that he delights over. But, I want to remind us something before we finish here. He does not show us off in outward power and glory. This is the mistake that the bride often makes. She now is beautiful, she now is wonderful, and she knows she's to be shown off, and she attempts to show herself off by what's on the outside. Imagine, it'd be kind of weird, I think, if like for the rest of their days after the wedding, the bride every day would wear her wedding gown. Wouldn't that be kind of strange and probably difficult to do some of the things that she's going to have to do? No. Peter would say it this way, what's going what's to show is the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, Peter is talking very specifically there about, uh, in the marriage relationship, how a wife is is to be um, showing forth the true beauty that's on the inside. But that's also what's happening with the church. God's intention is that the world sees that his church is beautiful on the inside meaning how they live, what they do, how they speak, not all of that other stuff that is external. Because the crown of glory must come through the crown of thorns. Is that not so? And the jewel must be a bloody cross. For the beauty of the bride is displayed at its apex when she says these words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is the moment when the bride's beauty is most shown forth because that is the moment when the true nature of God is most seen by the world. He loves mercy. And so, as the church of Jesus Christ, we've got to take courage, because it's not easy to do that, is it? It's easy to say it. (laughs) It's not easy to do it. When people laugh at you, when people make life hard for you, when struggles come and you want to get away from it all, it is hard to say, forgive them, Father, and help me to love them. And it's at that point that we come back. We come back. We've got to come back to this text. We've got to come back to this name, Hephzibah. Our God rejoices over us. 
he rejoices over us. And Beulah, he has married us to himself. He has brought us into relationship with him so that he can shout to the world what a great God he is, what a loving God he is, and that the world will have a chance to be a part of that if they would only come to faith in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this text. I know we sing a lot about rejoicing over you, and we ought to. But would you settle this deep in our heart that you truly, truly love us and rejoice over us? Not because of who we are, but because of what you've made us. In your grace and mercy, you would redeem us from being forsaken, from being desolate, so that you might rejoice over us. May your name be hallowed. May it be glorified through your church, Father. Would you, Father, provide for us this day the bread that we need, not just the bread to eat that nourishes our body, but the very bread that we have listened to today that nourishes our soul. And would we, Father, have that inner beauty that is expressed in forgiving others as we've been forgiven? And as we go forth from here, And the temptations hit us hard. Would you cause us to resist, even if to the death, delivering us from the evil one who would so gladly dominate? And give us that hope for that great wedding feast and marriage that we are given a little bit of insight into at the end of the book. Because your kingdom is a forever kingdom, and you have made us a forever people. We praise your name. Father, thank you that you rejoice over us. May we love you all the more for it. In the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.